We're just going to look at five verses. And I have to tell you, right up front, these are some pretty important verses, these five verses, and it's going to take us a couple weeks. Uh, The next two weeks we are going to talk about how to be an effective follower of Jesus. Now we are on this road trip with Paul, and we're going through his missionary journeys, and we just last week we just started his second uh, trip. He's got three journeys that he goes on. Um, and so we're just kind of getting started in this second missionary journey, but he has got us pausing here for a moment on this journey, just asking this question. You know, how do you know if you are an effective follower of Jesus? And he answers this question. So the, the first thing we have to establish is how do you measure one's effectiveness as a follower? How do you, how do you measure whether you are a, an effective follower of Jesus? So that's what I want us to focus on today. Um, how do we do that? How do we know if we are accomplishing what God really has asked us to be about and to do? Is it measured by our dress? And I know that probably most of you would be like, no. But I literally have had a hard time getting people, Christian people, to come to church because they tell me they don't have something to wear. But our effectiveness as followers of Jesus have nothing to do with that. It's not even close. Is it measured by our fellowship? You know, the, the, the stronger we are in fellowshipping, you know, the better we are hanging out with each other and enjoying each other's company, that determines our effectiveness as a follower. I don't think that's it. What about our effectiveness of, you know, it's dependent upon our sacrifice. You know, the more that we give, the more money we give to the cause, the more time we give, you know, to the church. Is that how we measure our effectiveness? And I think that if we were playing a game, remember that game like, you know, warmer, colder, you're trying to get somebody to discover and find something, and so you just tell them the head a certain way, and then you tell them, no, you're getting cold. You're getting colder, you're getting colder, and of course you know, like, I'm going the wrong direction, you know, and if they say you're getting a little warmer, you know, you're kind of moving in the right direction, and eventually they tell you you're hot. Well, I think if we were talking about, you know, if our effectiveness as a follower of Jesus is tied to our sacrifice, I would say, well, okay, now you're moving, you're getting warmer, okay, moving in the right direction. Is it, is it dependent upon or tied to our holiness? And I would be like, you're getting warmer. You know, just keep moving. You're getting warmer. But I still don't think that that's quite it either. So how do we measure? What is like the measuring stick that we would use to determine if we are effective followers of Jesus? By the way, how many of you are followers of Jesus? Okay, so I'm talking to pretty much everybody in this room. So how do you measure whether you're an effective follower? Let me give you a hint. So we're trying to discover this, right? It's found within our five verses. So Acts chapter 16, 1 through 5. I'm going to read it to you, and then you pay attention because I'm going to ask you which verse do you think is the measuring stick to determine our effectiveness as a follower. Paul came, it says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers of Lystra and Iconium. 
Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been raised by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So what do you think, church? Which verse is a measuring stick that we would use to determine whether we are effective followers of Jesus? It should be obvious to us. But here is the thing. And this is why it's so important, I think, for us to pause for a moment to really look into what we know because we should, this should like jump out to us, but I don't think it jumps out to us. This, this measuring stick to, to use to see how effective we are as followers of Jesus. How many of you want to throw out a guess? Which verse? Donnie? Five. Five? Five. You guys are awesome. It is. It is five. So look, look at five. And let's determine why it is a measuring stick. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. There's two things that are going on here, right? Two things that kind of define our effectiveness. One is they were teaching saved people to follow Jesus by observing or obeying Jesus' teaching. They were growing in their faith. They were growing in their knowledge of the Word of God and in what Jesus taught them. Number two, they were making disciples. They were bringing people into the fellowship. Their numbers were increasing daily, it says. They were bringing people into the family, leading other people to Jesus, a genuine, authentic relationship to Jesus they were helping people have. So, Those are the two things. Is that the two things that Jesus uses to measure us, to determine whether we are effective or not? I think it is. And I think that's why Paul knew that this is so important for him to convey this. And also, this was Paul's focus everywhere he went. His focus was to teach the church, save people, how to, what what Jesus said and how to obey that. And he was constantly searching out and bringing people into the faith. That is what we were called to do by Jesus himself. I believe with all of my heart that this right here should be our absolute number one most important focus as followers of Jesus. And all of you just claim to be followers of Jesus, and this is it. This is, this is what we should be focused on in everything that we do. Everything, our holiness, our fellowship, our dress, everything that we do should be supporting this right here, this cause, this mission. I want to take you to Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to look at this for a second because this is our mission in a nutshell in verse 5. 
But it, the reason I say that is because of what Jesus said to us in Matthew chapter 28. It says there in verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and he said to them, so just for context, and I think most of you all know this, but the context is, is that Jesus was just killed on a cross. He was put there by himself, not by them. Uh, he allowed them to put him there. But he came to be our sacrifice. So he allowed himself to be put on this cross for us, for mankind. <coughs> he just was brought down off that cross, was dead as a doornail, no life within him, was put into a tomb. Three days later, he came back to life and he opened or removed the stone from the grave. He walked out. He began to show himself to all of these people. At one time, he showed himself to a group of people of 500 people. And he showed himself to, on the road to Damascus to two people. He showed himself to the disciples several different times. He was showing himself to women. He's showing himself to just everyone because it was so important for everybody to know that he is no longer dead, but he is alive. One of those encounters was this encounter right here with the disciples. And he comes to them on a mountain. And he sits down with them, and this is what we have recorded about that time. It says, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey or uh, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I just want you to think about that for a second. Jesus, because of our context, Jesus was about to leave. He was about to exit this world, never to be seen ever again until his second coming, which has not happened yet. So this, this was his parting words. This was the last thing that he was going to say to his disciples. What is it that would be his last words? When you are about to leave and leave for good, what is that you say, whatever you choose to say, are going to be important words because they're your parting words. You see what I'm trying to get at? This is so important for us to understand. What is it that Jesus seemed to think is the most important thing he could leave with his disciples? Now, when my wife leaves somewhere, she always leaves instructions. Now, I don't know, maybe you other moms out here don't do this, but... She does this with me. She does this with the kids. Like if she's going to leave all of us for a period of time, uh, she will make notes and she will put them where she knows that we have to see them. We can't claim to not have seen them, right? So usually they're right there on the counter, really big. And her parting words are usually a list of to-do. Now, sometimes we don't have a list of to-do. Sometimes when people leave us, what do they do? We just get all the warm fuzzies, and that's it. Oh, I love you so much. Can't wait to see you. Okay, but that's not the way Lori leaves. She leaves with a smiley face at the bottom, and she'll say, I love you. But she leaves a list of things to do. This is what Jesus has done with his followers. His parting words was a list of to-do. How important was that to-do list? It's his last words. The last thing that he has them tell, or he tells to them. And so it's pretty important for us to just observe what it is, to understand this is probably one of the most important verses 
for us as followers of Jesus to memorize. I'm just saying. Because these are his parting words. Two things that he says there, right? Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And number two is what? Teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And then he gives them that warm fuzzy, and lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's his big old smiley face with his big heart and stuff of that sort. That's it. Two things. That's our mission. That is your life's mission if you're going to be a follower of Jesus. That is my life's mission. That is because we are a body of Christ and Jesus is the head. That is our mission as a church. And for us to do a good job at this, we all have to take it serious. We all have to figure out what part are we going to play. So, how are we doing? Now that we know, now that we have established what and how we're measured as whether we are effective followers of Jesus, how are we doing? How are you doing? Are you teaching? When's the last time, let me ask you this, when's the last time that you sat down with somebody, opened up the Word of God, and just went through the Word of God with them, teaching them what they need to do to be obedient to Jesus? When's the last time you had a personal Bible study with an individual? Whether it was your child, whether... It was a coworker, whether it was your spouse, whether it was somebody at church. When was the last time you just instructed people from the Word of God how to be obedient to God? When was the last time that you had a personal conversation with someone about being a follower of Jesus? Like, like literally, like trying to convince them to give up their life and to give their life to Jesus and let him be Lord and Savior of their life. When's the last time that you had a personal encounter with that? Because that is really what our missions boils down to. So, this question, how many people have you led to Jesus this past year? Those are tough questions. You know, I, I was faced with that question the last three weeks, I suppose. It kind of came about when Emily asked me, hey, I'm thinking about teaching women. And I was thinking about starting a D group. Of course, my first question is, is, that's awesome. What's a D group? Well, I'm not sure. I think that stands for discipleship. And I said, that's awesome. She says, but I want to teach women. And so wanted to see about maybe somebody teaching men, and we start in this thing. And so I approached Matthew and asked him, hey, Matthew, Emily's thinking about starting a D group where she teaches women. I was wondering if you would want to be interested in teaching the men on that side. He's like, sure, let's do it. What's a D group? Well, I don't know. We need to get together and discuss this kind of thing. And so we've been getting together for several weeks now, 
And we haven't really gotten that far, have we? I mean, we've had a lot of conversation. We're still trying to figure out exactly what it is that we want it to mean when we say degroup, right? And so we're trying to formulate and figure this out. And, but it has caused so many questions to me personally. And so I've just been diving into this. I've been praying about this. For the last couple of weeks, I've been reading books on this. Um, I've been reading God's Word, obviously, on this. And I'm trying to figure out what does it mean to be a disciple? Just because that has something to play with, or, you know, to be involved in, you know, a discipleship group. What does a discipleship do? We've got to know at least what is a disciple. A disciple literally is just a follower of Jesus, right? Isn't that what it is at the bare bones? Absolutely it is. It's an apprentice. It means that Jesus is the leader. He's the boss. He's the teacher. And we're just here to learn from him, to follow him, to do what he instructs. He gets to mold us and shape us and that kind of thing. So if we're a disciple of Jesus, that's what that means. Well, what does this teacher want from us? What does he want? And so this is the whole thing is we've just been trying to figure these things out and trying to figure out how to... to figure out what we are getting together to do. And in the midst of that, reading a book about discipleship, one of the questions that was asked me through that book was, how many people have you baptized this year? How many people have you sat down with, with the Word of God, and have taught them what it means to be obedient to Jesus and what and teach them what Jesus said and commands. And I began to argue with the writer. You ever done this? Maybe you argue with me sometimes, I don't know. But I began to argue with the writer and I began to think things like this. Well, it is I'm not the only one that is called to baptize people. We aren't the ones who really reap the harvest. We I, I'm just to plant seeds along the way. And who are you to ask me that question? You ever do this kind of thing? How many of those, how many people have you baptized? You probably just wrote books about it. And so I found myself just kind of being dis- defensive a little bit. You know, John Stott, this is what he says. He says, church doesn't do missions. The church is missions. I want you to think about that just for a second. And you are the church, by the way. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a part of his body, part of his family. You become a part of the church. The church doesn't do missions. The church is missions. I think one of the things Stott was trying to convey is that we all take responsibility of the mission. What is the mission? It's the Great Commission. I think that's what he's trying to say in, in a way, is that we don't, we don't do it like we send somebody to, you know, Haiti to do missions. We are missions. This is what we do here. It's kind of like the purpose of the Navy. What is the purpose of the Navy, by the way? Anybody know? Just to sail around and get seasick and see, you know, sail from shore to shore and 
they have a purpose, don't they? More than just sailing, more than just taking care of a ship. It's to, it's to defend is the purpose. The purpose of the church is for what? It's to carry on this great commission. It's to save. It's to educate. It's to teach people to observe everything that Jesus commanded us and to go and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's in a nutshell, and it is not. We have made this so complicated, but that is exactly all that we are called to do. And so our effectiveness is measured by how are we doing in that? And whether it feels uncomfortable or not, we have to literally ask ourselves, how are we doing on that? How are you doing on that? How are we as a church doing on that? So the, so the question kind of lingered in me for a couple weeks, and I began to not be so defensive. I began to just start asking the question, how am I doing? How are you doing? How are we doing on this? And I began to just kind of embrace my guilt instead of letting my guilt push the conversation away. Does that make sense? Instead of trying to make excuses and trying to alleviate my guilt and making excuses, rather just embrace the guilt and start making a plan on how to take care of it. You know, I teach five Bible studies every week. Some of them are individual, where I just sit down with an individual person and have a one-on-one study of God's Word about how to interpret it and then how to obey it. Five different situations I do that. And yet I still carry so much guilt about this conversation around the Great Commission. And part of it is, is because just tackling one side of it is not okay. It's like having half of a dollar bill and think that you got a dollar bill. By the way, you can't cash a dollar bill unless you have at least over half. At least over half. Or you could just split every dollar bill you have and you have two dollars now, right? But they will if you take it to the bank. If you have more than half of it, they will take that. I don't know what they do with it. And then they will give you a dollar. But but the reality is, is that God has called us. It's a whole. Go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I command you. And it's like a pair of shoes. It does no good if you got two feet to have one shoe. It takes both. And it takes us being focused on that. And so even though I am overweighted on one side and I could say, well, I got five Bible studies going on. How many you got going on? I still feel guilty. Why? Because I am lacking in the personal going and baptizing and making disciples in that way. My prayer for the last two weeks, and my prayer will continue to be, is that we begin to share this guilt as a church, as followers of Jesus Christ, that we begin to really not push back or make excuses, but that we really see that this is what God has called us to do and to embrace it and to make a plan to do better at it, for there to be some kind of repentance in us. I realize that, you know, just like we have a bunch of different 
places to plug in if you want to be a soldier. You can go to the Navy, you can go to the Marines, or you can go to the Army or the National Guards or whatever. I mean, there's different places we can plug in. And I realize that wherever we decide to plug in, there's different things to do. Even when you plug into the Navy or the Marines or whatever, or the Army, it doesn't mean you're on the, the front line, right? It could mean that you're playing a more supportive role, but they're all roles and they're all important. God has told us the same thing. We are a body of Christ, and we all are made up of many members, and we all play a different role. Some of us are teachers, some of us not. Some of us are preachers, some of us not. Some of us are amazing at hospitality, some of us not. But for us to understand that we're all playing the same role, but to be focused on, because if you're going to be in the military, you have to realize that even if you're not on the front line, you see the importance of the front line. What it is the point, the point of being involved in the military it is fight the enemy and to, to make sure the enemy doesn't overcome. What is the point of the church? Church, it's to baptize people into Jesus and teach them to obey everything I command you. That is, the, that is the nuts and bolts of what we are called to do, and we all play some supportive role in making sure that takes place. But we only do that is if we keep that the forefront of what we exist for. We don't exist for fellowship. Although we let fellowship be a part of doing what we exist for, and that is to make disciples and teach everybody to obey everything that Jesus commands. So it's really important. Let me just illustrate something here. When I was in college, I was a Christian for two months. Two months when I showed up at Ozark's doorstep. I went over there because Jesus got my life. He, he had ownership of me, whatever you want me to do. I was terrified to go over there, terrified. I tell you that, but you don't know. You do not know how terrified I was. But I was terrified. And, but here's the thing is, I knew that I did not belong to myself. Jesus owned me. I just got to do whatever he wants me to do. So I go. Just out of obedience, I go. But nobody at that college made me or forced me or told me that I needed to talk to people about Jesus or provided even an opportunity for me to do that. The only thing they did was educate me in what Jesus taught. They were doing one side of this spectrum. I think they do a better job at trying to balance that now, but they, di- they didn't. But here's what I knew. I knew before I even showed up, I had two months following Jesus with my life. And I knew that he wanted me to go and make disciples. I didn't even have this memorized. I didn't even know where you find it in the Bible. And yet I knew that I was supposed to share my faith. You knew this too, right? I bet you did. And so I was constantly burdened by the Holy Spirit, not by Ozark, not by my parents, not by the church, constantly by Jesus himself, by the Holy Spirit, to share my faith with people. So I would stop by anybody that I could see that I thought that I, Mike Elrod, who has no education whatsoever in the Bible, thought that I could probably try to accomplish. And so usually it was some hitchhiker or some homeless guy because I thought they were the least threatening in my life at the time as far as an education level. And I would just go sit with them. And I would just instantly, as quickly as I could, make it about Jesus. I didn't do it like right when I walked up. I just say, hey, what's your story? What's going on? Something like that. I would just try to tell them that I care. I would, if I had some money and I thought they needed it, I would give it, even though I don't encourage that anymore. 
But I'm just saying that I was trying to get in, and then I would share Jesus with them. I gave away so many Bibles at that time in my life. I was constantly looking for free Bibles just because I knew that it would eventually leave my hands and go into somebody else's. And I did this all the time. Then I graduated from Ozark, and I became a minister. Now, how many times do you think I do that now? Not near as many times as I did four years before I stepped into a church. I think this is probably where the church lacks the most. I think we do a pretty decent job of educating, or at least providing opportunities to be educated. But very few of us are going and making disciples. Very few of us. How many, how many people have you literally baptized into the watery grave? See, I asked you, how many of you are followers of Jesus? And every hand goes up. I ask you how many people you literally have baptized. And it's, I mean, some of you didn't raise your hand. You should have or could have. But I'm just saying that it's not readily, we're not just like throwing our hands up like every one of us. And yet every one of us is called to do this. Every one of us. At least be a part of trying to do it. Like that's our mission. Even if we don't do it, we're playing a part right along with somebody that is. And we just know that this is what, this is like... We are not having victory around here unless we are doing this kind of thing. The only thing that stands in the way is this. What did I bring up earlier? Fear. I think that is the number one killer of the church. Is we're constantly walking around fearful to carry out the great commission of Jesus. It is so simple, is it not? Go make disciples, teaching them to obey everything you command you. For whatever reason, teaching saved people isn't as threatening as going and making disciples of people that don't know Jesus. I want to take you one more scripture, and it's in Matthew chapter 10. Because I want us to deal with this fear just for a few minutes. Because it's a legitimate fear, I think. You think soldiers ever have fear? Probably not when they sign up. Probably not when they are being trained. But probably so when they are fixing to enter battle. Here's what Matthew chapter 10 is about. Jesus is sending out his 12. First time. They've just hung out with the master. He's taking care of all the problems. People threaten. They get a little nervous, but Jesus just, you know, poof, takes care of the situation, right? And so they feel almighty and strong because they're always with Jesus. But Jesus has decided that it's time for him to just kind of start training a little deeper and a little more. And he begins to send them out two by two. A couple of them go this way, a couple go this way, and he gives instructions. I want to read this to you because there's some pretty insightful things. It says, then, Jesus, then these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them. This is their instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. So Gentiles are, are hands off. Don't even approach them. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. Now I want you just to process that for a second. Take nothing with you. Don't take any money with you. I just want you to think about for a second that after today, we're going to have a sign-up sheet and we're all going to Haiti. You get to have a partner, but you don't take anything with you. You're not going to pack a bag, no suitcase, the clothes you have on your back, that's it. No money, no credit card, nothing. No phone, so you can call home when emergencies, no no comb, no nothing. You don't get to take anything. Now, you would already be freaked out by now. I guarantee it. And you'd already be saying what? Whatever. I am not doing that. I bet nobody signs up. But this is what Jesus says. He's telling them to take nothing. They, it'll all be provided for you. So here's how it's going to be provided for you. Verse 11. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. Oh, that's easy, right? You go to town, you have nothing. You're not going to eat. You're not going to have a place to sleep. You got nothing. You're at the mercy of these people, these strangers, and you got to figure out who would put you up and provide for you. Are you intimidated yet? This would be so intimidating. Try that the next time that you go on vacation. Hey, our vacation is, is we're taking nothing. We're going to let everybody provide for us. Now, I, I kid you not, there are people that do this. There are people that do this. This is like an adventure for them. And they just see if they can, you know, survive by the, the goodness of people. Um, and, you know, I'm sure they probably do, some of them. But, but regardless, just think about how intimidating this would be. Verse 12, it says, As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy... Let the peace come upon you, but if it is not worthy, let the peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that town or that house. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Just so you know, Sodom and Gomorrah would not have been a good place to live or to be known that that's where you come from. And so he is just saying, the people that reject you just know that I'm rejecting them. Okay? Now at this point, I don't know about you, but if I was the disciples, if I was one of the twelve, and Jesus was fixing to send me off, and he gave me the instructions, there would be some anxiety going on in my life. Even though I had a partner, which that would be really cool to have a partner because I would be checking out his anxiety. If his anxiety is more than mine, I'm really worried. But if he seems to be cool with it, I'm feeling a little bit better, but I still have anxiety in my life. To do this? But it's not over. So look at verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now they knew something about sheep and wolves. And Jesus just says, I'm sending you, you're the sheep, and I'm sending you out to the wolves. I would be like, you got that backwards, Jesus. I mean, you don't send sheep to wolves. You can, you can, I mean, that's just not the way that works. Nothing good can come out of that. And so they have to be wondering, oh, what are we to expect in this sending us out? Beware of men. 
for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. This is why we're studying Paul. I mean, not why we're studying Paul, but what we have found out as we study Paul is that everywhere he goes, is he treated well? It's both. Like, there's some people there that just really appreciate Paul showing up and telling them the truth, and they are coming to the faith left and right, right? But then the wolves come in, and they destroy everything. And before you know it, the wolves are the ones taking him out back and beating him and leaving him for dead, or wanting to. But there is danger everywhere Paul goes. And this is the picture that Jesus is telling his disciples. You can expect this. And they will take you out and they will flog you. And it says, and you will, they will drag you before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. <coughs> when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you will speak or what you will say or what you are to say or what you are to say will, for, how about I read it right? For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. So do not be anxious. Why is it that people who just tell you something really terrifying always tell you don't be terrified? (laughs) Well, don't tell me something terrifying and I won't be terrified, right? But when you tell me something scary, don't tell me not to be scared because that's not going to work. I'm going to be scared. But Jesus says that. And in verse 20 he says, For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So he's going to give you the words to say to these people who take you into court and are going to beat you. He'll give you things to say. I would be like, can I have that, like, manuscript first to just have in my pocket to go with me? Brother, and then Jesus says this, Brothers will deliver brothers over to death, and the father, his son, and the children will rise up against parents, and they will put, and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all of my, for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Can you imagine? So some of us are going to be winners, and some of us are going to be losers. But isn't that like... Just the life of a soldier. I mean, if they prepare you well enough for milita- in the military to actually go to combat, isn't this the kind of thing that they would make sure that you understand? That we might all not come back. That those who stand at the end win. Like, there's something at stake here. Only, only one side wins. You know, either Putin wins or Zelensky wins, but they don't both when I guess you could have a draw maybe, but it's never really a draw though, is it? But anyway, it doesn't matter. Jesus is saying that you just got to hang in there to the end and there's going to be fathers hating their children and children hating their fathers and, and they will all hate you, conversation. And when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. And truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciples to be like the teacher and the servant like the master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his house? 
This is like Jesus' way of saying, I'm just telling you up front, fellas, this is not going to end well for most of you. It's going to end badly. And it's going to be hard, even if, it, even if you stand to the end and you make it back. It's not going to be a story of roses. Like, oh, it was so easy. It's going to be hard. Because they're going to treat you the way that they treat me. Because if they kill the teacher, then they're going to abuse the students. But hey, you signed up for this, right? Do you, do you know that following Jesus had expectations to it? Or is this something that I'm teaching you for the first time today? Did, did you know that it had expectations? So, he goes on. Let me finish this, and then we've got to conclude. But So, have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you, you hear whispered, proclaim on the mount or the housetops. And do not fear those who will kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who destroys both soul and body in hell. I think our biggest problem as a church, not being as effective as we ought to be as a church, is that we fear them more than we fear him. We, somehow we have in our head have reasoned out this nonsense that we don't have to be afraid of God. That we don't have to fear him. Oh, he's our buddy. But Jesus has never taught us that, so why do we reason that? What brought us to salvation in Jesus in the first place could have been that I fear God more than I fear man. That's what brought me to Jesus. I was terrified where I was going to end up if I did not submit to this God, the, the one true God. Because I knew I sinned against him and I knew what I deserved. And so I submit to him. And then all my fear leaves? That doesn't make sense. I was afraid of him before. Why would I not be afraid of him now? The Bible doesn't tell us to eliminate that fear. We should always understand that he is, has all authority on heaven and on earth. And when he gives us marching orders, we should never just say, that'd be, like, that'd be like the stupidity that my kids or me would have just seeing the note on the thing and just saying, oh, she's so loving. She'll just not, we don't need to worry about this. My kids have tried that. It was not very smart of them. And the only thing I have going for me is that I don't really have anything going for me. But that's, see, that's the thing is, is why is it that we can just blow this off? Because we try to play that, don't we? Well, they're, they're terrifying out there. 
Here, let me just finish this. Are not two sparrows, this is what Jesus says, sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from my Father. But even the, the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Because he does love you. And his love is what drew you also to him. And my wife is really good about being authoritative and being fearful, but also being loving and compassionate. But don't misunderstand this, because listen to the next few verses, and then we will conclude this. So everyone who, ex- who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. I want you. I want you to uh, pray for pray for me. I want you to pray for Matthew and Madison and Emily and I as we're getting together on Tuesdays. I want you to pray for the elders of this church, and in, and then specifically, I want you to pray that we will be a church and individuals and. Uh, followers of Jesus that will not forget what our mission is and what our true purpose of existing is and how to make sure that we are all about that. I have been, Lori and I have been praying for just the church and ministry in general for like the last four weeks, I think. Every morning we get up, we get our coffee, we go to our chairs, we visit for a moment, and then we pray. And ever since that we began to pray, things have just been like so active, terrifyingly active. Like I don't know really what's going on, but I do believe that there is a revival coming. And I do believe that you're going to have to decide if you want to be a part of being an effective church or not. And and that means you're going to have to decide if I'm going to be an effective follower of Jesus. If I'm really going to be a part of what he has called me to do. Or I'm just going to continue to blow it off and have my reasons for doing it. But we are all soldiers in this Lord's army. And there's going to be things that are make us feel uncomfortable or we don't want to, but we have to realize that, that we have a master, a, a, a leader, and we're just the apprentice. And we signed up to follow him to do whatever he wants us to do. Let me pray. Father, for uh, teaching us here for giving us the opportunity just to pause and to look into Paul's life and to see why he did what he did. He was traveling around all these different places, not as a vacation, but to establish your church, to bring people into your your family. Why? Because 
he felt as burdened as the 12 felt when Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples. And this is something that continues to be passed down to us. And we are here, Father, to learn from them. We thank you for them teaching us about our priorities and about what we should be focused on. Father, don't let fear stand in the way of our progression. Let us be bold for Jesus. Let us be willing to do whatever it is that we need to do to accomplish this great task of of making disciples. Help us be a church that is not only teaching for education purposes, but that is teaching for obedience purpose. That we actually do what it says, not just that we know what it says. So, Father, I just pray that you help us be, feel some guilt, but let it lead, this guilt lead to repentance and not uh, defiance. And help us, Father, to know what it is that you want us to do as a church, as individuals. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.